I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers played with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygats, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! Okay, the Roll for Initiative podcast, volume number three, issue number 127. DM Vince sitting here with DM Matt. Hello, everyone. DM Nick. Hey there. And DM Chad. Yo. <laughs> We're back for another wonderful edition of our show after our, uh, I don't think we had a little, we had a little hiatus, probably about a week, right, Matt? Right, yeah, it was just like a little hiatus, but. We're, yeah, we cleared, we cleared out the mailbag and then we went on our uh, Memorial Day vacation pretty much and then came back. Yeah. Yes, but, pretty much. So let's jump right into things uh, news. Uh, we have a new podcast on our network, and yes, I'm doing it. Haha, the Chant of Light podcast is a Dragon Age only RPG podcast by Green Ronin, who produces the Green, uh, Dragon Age podcast. You can find it at chantoflight.com. The first two episodes are up, and you can join myself, my co-host Alex, and Mindy as we explore through Dragon Age for you. So there you have it. You can find that on. Uh, Twitter. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter. Find us on G+, or you can find us on iTunes, or go to OSRGaming.org. Chad, you had some news you wanted to uh, give us today? Yeah, just a couple of uh, conventions I wanted to mention to those of you uh, looking for conventions. Uh, The Dead Game Society is going to be heavily involved with the new Nexus Game Fair in Milwaukee on June, going from June 19th to the 22nd. And their official kickoff uh, for registration begins today, October 6th. Uh, In addition to that, uh, Michael, Colin, and myself will be representing the Dead Game Society at the end of this month at the Game Hole Convention in Madison, Wisconsin, which takes place from November 1st to the 3rd, and much fun will be had. So we hope to see you at either one of these. Yeah, and Dead Game Society Texas chapter. (laughs) Ah. I'm going to be demoing uh, Marvel superheroes this weekend for a bunch of new people. Fun. So yeah, hopefully get some more people involved playing some old games. And uh, lots of wild and crazy stuff happening. Yes. I guess that's it nice. for this. Uh, yeah. Let's head into some sage advice. Sage advice. Sage advice this week. We have a bunch of emails, even though we cleared out the email bag, but we still have a bunch more. Yeah. Because you guys love us so much. We appreciate it. You can write us at RFIstaff at gmail.com or give us a voicemail at 570-865-4210, the hotline. Yeah, and I actually have a clear, some uh, additional information for uh, email from last week when we were talking about dropping things on players <laughs> of, of heavy weight. 
I, there's actually a rule for that in the DMG, hidden okay. on page 64. It's oh, page 64. Yes, it says... 65 it, shall be outright. Exactly. <laughs> yes, you, you shall take one point of damage per 14 pounds of weight per foot dropped when dropped between 10 feet and 60 feet. Anything over 60 feet is treated as 60 feet. Or you can just do 1d6 of damage per 14 pounds. So if dropping a 140-pound player on another player is 10d6. So you're talking about the uh, boulder damage. Exactly. Just because it, it also, yeah, so just use the boulder damage for dropping, like, a cow on a player or other or, players. Or which is always a great practical joke. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. I'd like to drop a moose on somebody. That would be fun. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. are funny. Yeah. So probably the most lethal weapon in the game is a fighter drop from sixty feet. Mooses. Yeah. In full plate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In full plate, you could probably get that damage up to twenty d six. How about a cow in full plate? Oh, a cow in full plate. <laughs> We're probably looking at forty to fifty d six. A moose in full plate. Yeah, we're we're t- we're talking hundred. We're talking shadow run levels of D six here at that point. Awesome shadow run. <laughs> we're talking D ten equivalent of uh, Vampire the Masquerade. Yes. What about a rogue Indian elephant with a great white shark on its back? Oh, That's with friggin' laser beams on their foreheads. Yes. Well, that yes. would just be crazy. Yeah, that's just crazy talk. But, yes, it would probably squash your entire party several times over. The laser beams alone would probably kill them. Yeah. Works for me. Yep. Anyway, <laughs> rfistaff at gmail.com is our email address. We do have some emails here, and I'm going to pull them out here and read them. Hello, esteemed Dungeon Masters. I have a simple question for you. Do all magic swords and daggers glow upon command? What is your experience with this? Thanks, David D. No, they do not. No, I have no experience. No, okay. They, uh, <laughs> I games they don't glow at all unless there's a, a some type of ability that says with it, uh, swords have a light ability or glow ability. Otherwise, no. What about uh, you, Chad? What do you have to say? I agree with what you're saying. It, generally speaking, magic swords listed in the Dungeon Master's Guide do list if they glow, such as the Holy Avengers. But, you know, that said, there's also special uh, special purposes and special purpose powers for uh, swords. So you could have a sword that special purpose is to kill orcs and it glows in the presence of orcs, a la Sting from The Hobbit. I was, yeah, it's your campaign. Do what you want. If you want swords to glow light blue, light purple, whatever, then that's what you do. Nick, what about your games? Uh, we don't use swords. We use toothpicks. Oh, that's right. You use only blunt weapons because that's all clerics can use, right? Are you playing hey. mouse guard? <laughs> yes, I'm playing mouse guard now. No, um, you know, I've always, I think I've always remembered playing it to where like most of them like glow at a ten foot radius. Or if it's not ten foot radius, I thought it was like at least as torch. But I think a torch is thirty feet. But I mean, it really depends on the campaign. I mean, some of them they don't normally glow, like, uh. Like a like a flame tongue, yeah, it glows, but it's a flame. So, <laughs> I just think it really depends on your campaign if you want. Now, daggers, I don't 
recall having any magical daggers that glow. I only remembered like the swords glowing. I've only ever seen swords glow in like the video games. That's it. Yeah, and there's also yeah. the sword. Uh, I think it was in Castle Ravensloft, the one that, and they listed in uh, the Sun Sword. Or at least one. Yeah, the Sun Sword. I think they talk about it in the Unearthed Arcana as well. Yeah. Wait a minute, isn't that Thundar's sword? Blah. <laughs> well, Thundar is the one who eventually defeated Strahd, so there you go. Yeah, exactly. His name was also Jander. Oh, no, sorry. That's... <laughs> Lords of Light! Lords of Light! Ride! Ukla! Ride! Alright, enough tangents, sorry. That's <laughs> two cents on this. They don't glow in my world unless they actually have a power that would cause them to illuminate either flame or perhaps they actually have like a light spell built into them. Maybe if it was a sort of like detecting something, like detect evil or something where if you get close to it, it glows more and more, kind of like your uh, ye old metal detector. But uh, outside of that, no, it non-glowy here. They don't sparkle either. So what if, like, the Red Skull had it and he was summoning Cthulhu? Would that make it glow? No, no. It'd probably go black. Uh, like a... Hey, that said, probably Unholy suck. Reavers do cast darkness. Yeah. So um, it'd be like an Unholy Reaver. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's an a... Unholy Reaver and an Avenger in the same room, you can have a strobe light. Oh, AD&D yeah. rave. As they do battle. There you go. <laughs> 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 Anyway, uh, let's go on to our next. <laughs> Not sure how to respond to that. Hi guys, I wanted to write in and ask if you can cover the rules for creating and interacting with sages, which appear on page thirty-one to thirty-three of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Have you ever used these random tables to create a sage for your games? I have not, but creating the sage ahead of time in a totally random way fits my DM, my style as a DM. Any thoughts you have are appreciated. DM Kojo! He scored a goal, too. Um, <laughs> oh, I've and never good. used chart. Yeah. Anyone else use that chart? No, I've never used it, but yeah. Now I've always that wanted I, to. Yeah, I know. That's my thing. I've always wanted to as well. My players it's never go to Sages, it's- so it's like I never have the opportunity. Yeah, that's actually a good point. A lot of, you know, that's it, one of those things that you would think more players would take advantage of in big cities, and yet they seem to prefer blithely charging in unknowing. Right. To the magic Yeah, stuff. pretty much. Or like send, sending the thief to find out information, the thief dies. Yeah. Which has happened. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I but mean, I'm, it's I'm like when I used to, yeah, I was going to say, it's like when I used to live in St. Louis, I lived down the road from uh, the anheuser Brewery. Brewery and uh, I always said I was going to go there and I never did. Well, it's it's like I've always wanted to use the sage that I never have. Yeah. You can go to the brewery? Yeah, I didn't go, actually. I always said next week. Chad. Anyway. No, I've never Turn used... in your man card now. Yeah. No, and they give you free beer at the end of the tour. Oh. <gasps> Anyway, so Joe, we will uh, go over this a little bit more in detail, maybe for a uh, Dungeon Master Rules section. We can go over this a little bit. But uh, thank you for yeah, bringing absolutely. That. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Good idea. So our next email comes from 
Lynn. Hey guys, I was wondering if you had any, any insight on the I3 to I5 campaign module. I noticed with many others that there is no full detailed map of the desert adventure. I can only the only one I could find was about two inches by three inches. Obviously, I cannot run a game into the desert in, in my world that I am drawing if I cannot see what the desert looks like. Please help me. You guys are my only hope. And the forms, uh, they're a little confusing. That's how he ends it. <laughs> they're like a maze. Hmm. What was the... The Desert of Desolation. Right? I've ran the Desert of Desolation, actually. Uh, but I'm trying to remember now. What was the first part of the question again? He wanted a map? He can only find uh, a two inch by three inches of the Desert Adventure map. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, they can. There's also the continental map uh, that comes, you know, in the box set and all that. Uh, and it does show, you know, albeit small, but it does show that region. I, you know, I mean, the maps that they include in that module should be sufficient to do it unless they're trying to trek out into an even deeper portion further east. Or, I'm sorry, yeah, east. Uh, but for the portions that they're at least supposed to be going to in that adventure, I thought the maps did okay with it. I, I don't remember experiencing any inability to portray where they were from the maps. I'm not a module runner, so I don't really know what he's talking about for that particular part is he i wonder if he's running the super module they'll they'll evolve three of them together yeah, and that's what i ran the separate modules maybe that's what he's saying because he's saying i3 to i5 campaign module yeah it sounds like it's the whole thing together the whole desert of desolation series yeah and that's called the desert of desolation and it's got the grinning skeleton and egyptian pharaoh garb on the front of it he wants to see, notice that there's no full detailed map of the desert adventure is what he's saying. Right. So it sounds like what he's wanting is an actual map yeah. of the entire desert of desolation. I, they don't really give you that because the, within that adventure, you know, the idea you have places you need to go within that adventure, like the Oasis of the White Palm. Right. Where you're and I believe that this. What, Chad? Oh, no, I was just saying for where you're supposed to go, it's covered. But yeah, if you wanted to literally take a caravan out across the desert of desolation and see it in its entirety, I don't believe they have that. So I'm looking. I'm looking at uh, dndclassics.com and they have the three separate modules, uh, I-3 Pharaoh, I-4 Oasis of the White Palm, and I-5 Lost Martek. I guess if you wanted to, and, and they're five bucks each, if you want want to you know, download each one, maybe they have better maps in them. I don't know. Right, maybe because typically in the super modules, didn't they shrink down the maps a lot? Yes, they did. So oh, I know, I yeah. know they did in the, Queen of Spiders, they did. They put them like in one little booklet. Right, whereas in the individual modules, they would actually be in the cover and taking up basically right. two, two sheets. Of, so it, it'd probably be a nice blown-up version. I'm 
I'm looking through uh, I-3 right now, and there's a decent-sized map of the uh, desert wilderness there in the cover. Yeah, yeah. There might it might be worth. Uh, what's his name? Lynn might be worth uh, your uh, if you want to spend the money. Uh, oh, go to uh, you know go to dndclassics.com. They have all three separate modules. It might be worth it for to spend you know to to have the better maps. Right. right, and they do go into good detail uh, in the modules about the desert, and you know yeah. they talk about its 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 genesis, uh, what it was prior to that. They they talk about adventuring in the desert. So with what they mm-hmm. give you, you know, if you really wanted, I guess the full detailed map, you might have to. That might be where you have to kind of be more creative on your own to come up with that. Maybe, maybe use maps of the Sahara. I don't know. And I think the, the series itself was set to where it could be in any campaign setting. It wasn't to any one specific one, as far as I recall. Well, it, I mean, it it does give histories on the desert of desolation as it pertains. Right. But I mean, as far as the game world, Oh really? To, to uh, so it is in World of Greyhawk. Yeah, I believe it's Greyhawk. I may be wrong, but I thought it was. So I, I thought it was. It's been a while I since I any, ran this adventure. Okay. I'd say it's been a few years since I ran it. Hmm. Yeah, but I think it's in Greyhawk. I don't. Oh, think you know it... what? I'm sorry. No, I'm it's wrong. not. And here it is. Uh, I used it in Greyhawk, but uh, <laughs> is Forgotten Realms. But yeah, there is that it's big Forgotten Realms. Realms map, and it does show the Desert of Desolation all the way, I believe, to the east of that map. There we go. Oh, so that's where they plopped it in. They retconned it later on. Right. So originally it wasn't in Forgotten yeah, Realms. They Realms. added it to Forgotten Realms. So. I see. Yeah. So the, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we have an answer. Yeah. And then, yeah, because it was yeah, retconned around the time of the Wilderness Survival Guide. So you could, you could also okay. use the Wilderness Survival Guide gotcha. rules as well with that. Because isn't there, if they start wandering in areas off the map, isn't there a way to uh, randomly generate what they actually wandered into? From yeah, side? there is. There's random encounters that can take place in the desert. Right. I was talking more about, like, the actual terrain. Like, well, yeah, they also talk about the terrain. Well. terrain? Okay. Yeah. Like when you're, yeah, because I know I've seen it somewhere. I'm just drawing a complete blank of where it was. But it, like, if your party ventures off your map, there's a way to actually, okay, you're in this type of terrain. You roll in this chart, and it'll tell you what type of terrain they wandered into. Yeah, I think oh, they okay. do. I'd have to dig up my old copy and look at it again. All right. Well, we'll research this a little bit and find out more if we can in the future. But yeah, you know what? The Desert of Desolation and and just desert role play in general would make an interesting show. Oh, I found what I was talking about. It's the random wilderness terrain in the DMG Appendix B is what I was talking about. That book has everything. Yes, it does. (laughs) So yeah, if they start wandering in areas off the map, you could just use that chart to say, okay, now you come across this. Ooh. Uh, look at Gygax Magazine number two at uh, Luke Gygax's uh, mini uh, module adventure thing going on there. Let me pull that out for a second. It was called uh, 
What's it called? Actually, it's over on my bookshelf. Uh, I ran the championship round of that at GaryCon last year. The Blighted Lands. He has some really the good Blighted Lands for uh, desert uh, combat and uh, movement and tactical movement. You can even just steal from there. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, he used that too. Absolutely. A quarter of a giant city of the map there you can use. So, Yeah, that, that adventure would be hand in glove with the Desert of Desolation series. Absolutely. Okay, thanks, uh, Lynn. Actually, his name is Lynn Istel because I actually didn't put his full name in there when I copy and pasted it, so I apologize. Sorry. Anyway, last email comes from Mike from the UK, a.k.a. Magic Carl. Hi, folks. I heard you briefly mention Dungeonland and would like to, would love to hear about it in more detail through discussion or through Blackstone's Vault. I was brought into role-playing games through Noah Antwiler. Antwiler am I pronouncing that right? A-N-T-W-I-L-E-R? Country Monkey Series. And one of the stories involved Dungeonland. Even better, if you can somehow get him on the show to interview him, then if that's possible. On a side note, uh, you guys asked a while back for some original music to be made for the show. I am a songwriter-composer and would love to gladly make you some music without a charge. Uh, you've already given me hours of entertainment already. Just let me know what style you want, and I'll get on to it, Mike. Well, if he's willing to do it for free, sign him up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what style we'll be looking for. Anything cheesy 80s, rap. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Who said rap? I like some gangster rap, please. Uh, you can hang yourself now. Yeah, <laughs> get out. Yeah, so, some like old nineteen eighty eight like NWA. Oh, some Easy E, Slick Rick. Yeah, Anything like on a moonwalk Casio too. keyboard would be great. Yes, <laughs> a Casio keyboard. I'm think ah, if I went to my parents, I think I have one. <laughs> it's nice. not even a full size one. It was like one of the little forty dollar ones. That'd be amazing. Mm. They were pretty cool. Yeah. All the cool kids had one. Yeah. Yeah. But regarding Dungeonland, uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, Nick. I was going to say oh, no, regarding Dungeonland, it is a fun uh, to, well, there are two of them beyond the Magic yeah. Mirror Dungeonland. Dunge yeah. yeah, Land Beyond the Magic Mirror, yes. I thought we reviewed yeah. Dungeonland, didn't we? Uh, I uh, think we did talk about Dungeonland, actually. I thought we talked about I thought we talked about both of them. Maybe in the it was a long time ago though. Yeah, I could have sworn but back with Jason was we did that. I think so. Um but knowing those two modules, I remember getting those and a little history behind them is I think they're listed as EX one and EX two. And they were originally like extension adventures like sidetrack adventures from the original castle Greyhawk campaign. And, um, what ha basically, if you remember Chad, how the first one opens up, like you're, you're falling and you're falling and falling basically somewhere along the lines in the original castle Greyhawk. So many people fall into a pit, like an endless pit. And that's how you get sucked into quote-unquote dungeon land. Yeah, I, I do and, think I remember that. And and I I also yeah, remember the... It, uh, isn't the, and, uh, the, the Manhattan throws out Executioner Hoods? 
Yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And the king pretty, does a time stop. I yeah. Yeah. I know. And in the second module, you do meet uh, a quasi deity from Greyhawk. Cool. You meet Merlin. That well, was Merlin's me rule, but yeah. Any, we did that or not? I'm searching for it, and I'm not finding it. Even though it feels like we've talked about it, maybe it was in like a sage advice or something. Or let's see. Maybe we can add it onto the list of reviews. Yeah, it, it's it is a really it's a nice set of adventures to do in between your serious campaign. I think, although it's yeah. very easy to die in Dungeonland. Yes, it is. There are some spell restrictions and magic item restrictions. It is if you're familiar with like Queen of the Demon Web Pits and all those spell and magic item restrictions, the Dungeonland is very similar in that respect. Maybe not as much. But yes, they are the, the those sorts of things are there, and it's a cool sidetrack, at least in, in my opinion. It's it's a nice change of pace. So mm-hmm. I agree. Cool. All right. So maybe we're, we'll look into uh, maybe there will be a Blackstone's vault on those. Who knows? Yes, Blackstone must work again. Blackstone. Or we can review them in the show, like we did that one couple of modules we did. Give Blackstone a no. check; doesn't show up. Hey, well, the, those checks don't bounce. That would be nice. Well, they're rare rubber. You can't pay, you can't pay in Monopoly money, okay? You can't, well, or you can't pay in steel pieces. How about that? Well, Blackstone negotiated steel pieces. It's not my problem. Well. And he's an idiot. <laughs> he needs a better agent. Yes. Matt, you should have been his agent. Yes, I should. But then it would have cost the show more. So it doesn't. When you have OTUG being your agent, you know, what are you going to do, right? Well, Matt, you kind of got stuck editing the show, so I don't guess you didn't agent yourself that well. No, no, not really. No. <laughs> Jason put the uh, persuasion con on you there somehow. Right. <laughs> Like, oh, this doesn't seem like it'd be a lot of work. Little did I know. <laughs> anyway, so that's our sage advice. RFI staff at gmail.com, 570-865-4210, the hotline. You can also hit us up on osrgaming.org, or you can find us on D20 Radio as well. And one of the fine podcasts is there as well, too. Let's head to some table matters. Typical. Of all the evil creatures in the world, I'd like to find one with table manners. What are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. And now we are in table manners, and we're actually going to respond to a request from our last show. And then talking about the fighter, the much maligned class that people seem to think is just rather simplistic. It go, it smash things, and there's not a lot of customization or uh, options for a player when in reality there are. They're just not as mechanical always when you look at some of the other class. So we're going to be talking about fighters. When you look in the player's the hand. The sword jock. Yeah, the sword jock. I mean, when you look at the amount of space devoted to it in the player's handbook when compared to other classes it's very very tiny it doesn't even get a half page 
Now it's uh, very, very, very straight to the point, and the only major, major option for a fighter, but the rest of the fighter subclasses get it anyway, is the multi attacks. Right. It dice creatures. Right. So there's really not a lot of character creation choices. But, but. if you a creative so person. So what was that about the uh, about the zero hit dice creatures? Oh, the where basically they get to make more attacks than your standard person against uh, creatures of lesser hit die. And that is actually found at the end of the sec, uh, in the player's handbook on, I think it was like... Uh, page 40. At, no, it's not. Uh, it, it was, it was page, right after the ranger. Yeah, you know what? Hold on. Yeah, because they, they decided... Page 25, I it's think. It's page 25. Right. And it's actually one thing to stipulate, though. It's not just lower hit dice. They have to be either zero-level humans and semi-humans... Uh, or creatures of less than eight-sided hit dice, which might beg the question, what about first-level magic users who are not eight hit dice, but they're not zero-level either? Right. So all of those creatures, a fighter gets one attack per level against those. So so, so some of your cannon fodder, you know, like when you start throwing hordes of kobolds and things of that nature, a... Fifth level fighter can slaughter them rather quickly. So that is one yeah. advantage of a fighter has, which actually makes that sense. That is a really cool thing. Yeah. It's one attack per level per hit dice creature under under zero. No, it's it's if you have a tenth level fighter and, and he takes a, a disliking to a school of magic, he could walk in and kill all ten of the zero-level mage apprentices in one round because he gets to attack one time per hit dice that he has. Right, so it's ten attacks, not ten attacks per creature. Well, I was only asking that question because that's a question that was posed to me, so right. I wanted to clarify it on the show for somebody. Yeah, yeah. I, I always played it as, like, I, and I use it in my current Temple of Elemental Evil campaign. You know, we got guys who are playing... Um, you know, six level fighters, seventh level fighters, and they get seven attacks against all like a whole bunch of uh, goblins that they encountered. So yeah, it's yeah, and it could be all against one creature. I mean, technically, a tenth level fighter could. could go up to one kobold and whack him <laughs> ten times. Right. Sure. Yeah. So they're great fighters. Are great room sweepers. You just send mm-hmm. them in, and they'll hack up the room, and you may not even have to do anything else. If you have a high enough level fighter, but really, other than that, they're very basic, and they're hence why a lot of people say they're great for new players because you don't have a lot of options uh, when it comes to tactics and uh, mechanical uh, parts of the game. But where the fighter has probably the most flexibility is you get the have the ability to be kind of creative because since they're such a blank slate, you can take them in any direction you want. Yeah, you could be the fighter and walks around in his full plate and goes in the room and wants to be a knight and all that, blah, blah, blah. Or you could be like, hey, more of the like sneaky con man, like, yeah, he's great with a sword. At the same time, he's kind of glib and he uh, likes taking people's stuff and extorting people maybe he makes oh my you- god that's funny you mentioned it. i'm sorry because i have a friend adam he's he played a fighter but he has always said this is this guy on play is probably the most thiefy fighter you're ever gonna find so- 
<laughs> he did that. He did it that way. Right. It's I once played a fighter who he passed himself off as he he tra- He's far away from home and has real nice and shiny blades and weapons and always perfectly coughed. At the same time, though. He, and he passes himself off as nobility. At the same time, no, he's just like a poor farm boy who managed to uh, get himself some shiny armor, and but really thinks he should be far more than what he is. So he basically lies about everything in order to keep up the facade and basically give have people give him favors, thinking he's a noble. Yeah, or you can take your fighter and instead of using the charisma as a dump stat, put that as your highest stat, and just be ha- make him a really... Like a big con man that can back himself up with his blade. Exactly. I mean, there's lot, or you could just you could go fire decks, but instead of like wearing the bulky art, uh, plate mail, maybe he prefers leather or a chain shirt, so that way he's more mobile and he can fully maximize his decks. Like a duelist, right? But you don't actually have to use all any of the unearthed arcana or the. Uh, additional classes from uh, Dragon Magazine to accomplish that. You can accomplish those uh, subclasses by just being a regular fighter and role-playing it. That's what people Mm -hmm. did before they existed in a supplemental manner. Before the Unearthed Arcana came out, you didn't have Cavaliers and you didn't have Barbarians. You had fighters that came from barbaric lands or nobility. Right. Right. Maybe your fighter, he's a fighter yet, doesn't really like to kill things or draw blood, so all he uses are, are blunt weapons. Like uh, I thought you were going to say, so maybe he's a bad fighter. <laughs> yes. Uh. Right. He he only strikes blows down to the, like, they get one hit point, and then he tries to talk you down. Yeah, he only cuts you to the quick. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's just lots of different personalities you can give your fighter that will make him unique and make him different. And then you don't have to worry about, well, mechanically, it's not all that interesting. But you can give him such a personality that he's very interesting. Talk to the DM. I mean, you can have your fighter become like Chad said. There was no knights. There was no barbarians. So just why not make him a, a knight? Talk to your DM. Be like, oh, I want my guy to be able to ride a horse really well. And right. we'll say in his background, he liked to uh, practice with a lance or a stick. And he became really good at it. And he started going to really tournaments. And, and there was this music from Queen playing in the background. And yeah. <laughs> a movie. I'm sorry. And uh, my name is Ulrich von. Oh, sorry. Lichtenstein. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or for that matter, you know, put him on the high seas and call him a pirate. Right. There you go. There's another way you could take the fire. You could make him more like a swashbuckler, uh, right. pirate kind of guy. He's a musketeer. Yeah. Why not? You can do anything. The fighter is very, it's a very flexible class because it's not bogged down by all the mechanical uh, wherewithals that the other classes have. Maybe you want... You want to be a uh, from a primitive tribe, and you actually ride like a giant boar as your mount, as opposed to a horse. You're like a beastmaster type. Mm-hmm. Why not? Yeah, you can, you can do all of that. Yep. So, while the fighter looks like it has no major options, you can make it whatever you want it to be. Is the point right? Yep. Yeah, I would say just you know, you should never pigeonhole the role of the simple soldier or mercenary to the fighter. He can be really, 
if you have a creative collaboration between player and GM, the fighter is probably, in my opinion, the most flexible class, even more so than the thief. Yeah. No joke. I had a player in my party who was so tired of just all the basic classes. He wanted something different. He took a fighter and he maimed him after one of the WWF wrestlers from the 80s and just wrestled every one of the creatures he found. He made him, he put him in tights. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and all he did was nice. just the whole adventure. He would take him, he would, people like, I want to body slam. And he grabbed the creature and tried to body slam. And I had to make Oh, a- that's awesome. Awesome. That is, that, that, that sounds from kind of like I played a monk once and all he did was travel from town to town looking to prove himself in hand-to-hand combat. Now that you mention it, I I do recall uh, the Rogue's Gallery supplement, you know, on the back where it has all the interesting personalities. Yeah. The very last one, I think his name is Valerian, and he's a fighter, but if you read about the, the character, he's kind of like a duelist kind of swashbuckler. He uses a special sword called a sword of skewering, which mm-hmm. is like a like a dueling sword, you know, like right. you, you would use in fencing. And yeah. he dresses kind of uh, flamboyant. Bop-ish. Yes, he's a fighter class, but he's like uh, like a dueling musketeer in a way. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So just. Think of the personality of your fighter in his yeah. background. That's how you make him stand out. I, don't always go for, well, this sword will do the most damage or this armor will give me the most bonuses. No. Oh, the whole time through the adventure. Right. Right. <laughs> Maybe you want a fighter who's like dual wields instead of using a shield. You can do that. Sure. Why not? I mean, there's you have lots of customization because there's so few limits really put on the class. So, and if you're talking like things mechanically, just just off the top of my head, um, if you use Unearth Arcana, you know you got the specialization rules for fighters. Right, that's another way that they're a little more unique. And you specialization, can, man, woo, that more than puts the fighter on the same rank as, say, a paladin, which yeah, cannot because specialize. You can, right, because you can actually make that fighter like to the ultimate swordsman with maybe with a bastard sword right. or the ultimate warrior with a battle axe. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe you just want to go a little weird. It's like, you know what? I'm going to specialize in halberd, you know, <laughs> and this be like the best darn halberd user on the planet and that's another way of doing it if if you're looking mechanically wise you know that's right. one way of doing it could right. you put- yeah with specialization one-on-one a, a fighter is going to eat a paladin for breakfast oh yeah at a level at least by far yeah and, and i do it at my campaign to make even fighters even more unique I do it to where specialization is only to fighters. I don't allow rangers yeah, or paladins. In my game, I only allow rangers to ha- to specialize in the bow because as I see it, if you're specializing as a fighter has the time to do, paladins have to pray half the day. Yeah. Rangers have to study wood lore, right? But right. fighters have the time. They can put in the time to to specialize in a weapon. Rangers, I allow them to specialize in a bow because I say, you know, they spend a lot of time hunting probably yeah, with I, a bow. Yeah, I agree to to a certain extent. You know, the, the fighter, they're the weapons masters. They're the ones who 
they're out there learning how to hone their skills maybe with if you want to with specialization with one particular weapon or if you just want to not go specialization you know you learn all different types exactly things and not to mention the fact that when they do uh reach ninth level uh and are formally a lord yeah you know they build their castle they they clear it uh so that it can be settled they're the class that can start banking the money the paladins have to tithe right yeah They're, they're giving away most of their money and the rangers well they don't really build a city per se if you want to be rich ultimately i mean if you're in character goal is to, is to have a lot of money. There's yeah. no class that's going to get rich easier than a fighter. And pl- plus, with fighters, you got look of all the different magic items as far as what you can get. There's like no restriction to armor, no restrictions to weapons. Like fighters or rangers, like yeah, rangers can use a wide variety of armor, but that there's a limited use when you into your rangers abilities and paladins want the best armor possible. So yeah, there's a not lot too many rangers are uh, moving silently in full plate mail through the woods. No. no. Nice. Cool. I think that's all we really can say about that. Yeah. yeah there's just lots of cool stuff right. to do with the fighters. Not just, I, I love playing fighters. Yeah, yeah, I do too. It's not just a vanilla stick jock, man. You right. could do a whole bunch of stuff with them. Yeah, and there's actually one other way you can also advance your fighters too. It's a optional note on uh in the DMG for fighters. It normally a fighter every two levels they increase their uh, to hit by like plus two. So your level one to two fighter hits armor class zero at a twenty. Three to four hits at an eighteen. Five to six hits at a sixteen, and so on. But with this optional rule. For every even level, you add one to their two hit. So instead of going up by two every two levels, you go up by one every one level, kind of like later editions. So at second level, instead of hitting armor class zero on a 20, you hit on a 19. At level four, instead of hitting on an 18, you hit on a 17. So that's another way you could just add a little bit more to a fighter to... Just make them stand out a little when they're able to hit in combat a little bit better than their paladin or ranger brethren, even though that rule can also apply to them as well. I would mm-hmm. consider giving it more to the fighter only. Just yeah. another way to make them stand out. I agree. Yeah, and if you allow double specialization, forget about it. They actually become <sighs> the they become really powerful. Nasty. I actually yeah. don't allow it because it makes them I mean, it, it makes them too powerful compared to all the other classes. Yeah. But yeah. Fighters, lots of options. You just have to think a little outside the box and yeah. not just get stuck by what's written in the rules. So. Yep. Yeah. So with that, I think we will head on into our creature feature. Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain... Into a seven and a half foot long gorilla! Creature Feature Theater. It's alive! It's alive! All right, everybody. Uh, We're going to do our creature feature. And this is one I've been waiting to do for a while. 
and we're going to talk about probably the most nasty uh, of undead that's out there, the lich. And to a lesser extent, the, the demi-lich. We're kind of put them both together. And so, don't forget about the Draco Lich. And the Draco Lich, too. So, yeah, you got a triple threat there. <laughs> That's right. Triple threat there, brother. That's right. Lich, Draco Lich, Debbie Lich. Look out. So um, why don't you start off, Chad, and let's talk about how, how the, a, a, what a Lich is and how they are made. Yeah, well, the Liches, Lich is probably my favorite undead. They're, they're just awesome uh vampires are pretty cool too don't get me wrong but Mm -hmm. but liches they are the epitome of the undead uh okay first off uh a great article to read outside of the monster manual to find out about them is issue 26 of dragon magazine written by linda kafka and the article is entitled blueprint for a lich uh, and it's it, it really gets into the uh, nuts and bolts of, of the genesis of a lich. Uh, so obviously liches were once powerful arch magi. And I say arch magi because they are generally, they had to have been between 14th to 18th level at the time of their transformation or death. Uh, and most right. of the time they were 18th level. Yeah, and if I yeah. recall, they could either be magic users or magic user clerics. So if they, they were could human, be clerics, they could be straight clerics, but they had to get it that because of the spells required to make the transformation, they would have to hire or contract a high level right. magic user to cast the right spells. So they actually could be magic users, clerics, or magic user clerics, which probably would mean that. At one point, who was ever that magic user cleric lich, he he dual classed at one point. Exactly. If he was a human, and in my opinion, if it's a if it's a lich that's both magic user cleric, watch out, man. (laughs) He's gonna be tough. He's gonna be very tough. About the only thing going for you if you have to face that combination of a lich uh, would be the fact that he no longer really communes with his god anymore. Yeah, he's probably maybe a little bit at odds with them. But anyway, <laughs> talk about that that <laughs> article, I guess, that that blueprint for a lich. Yeah, well, one of the first things it does is it goes through what it takes to become a lich. Uh, it's kind of a, so uh, so you want to be a lich. Uh, I would <laughs> so say. So you want to be a lich, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now you're a lich. Uh, no, actually, it's it's not easy becoming a lich. Uh, liching ain't easy. Hmm. Uh, sorry. Lichen ain't uh, easy. Okay. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's one of those functional movies. How <laughs> a lich? Now you're a lich. Now what do you do? It's 1945, and the liches. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, yeah. The first thing you got to do if you want to be a lich is you have to obviously have a certain number of of specific spells prepared in advance or at least known in advance you need to know magic jar trap the soul and enchant an item along with these spells you'll need to brew a particularly nasty potion and the ingredients of which are really (laughs) pretty funky one of which is is the uh, corpse of an infant killed by a phase spider yes and i have something to mention about that later but continue okay 
Uh, but okay, so say you have all your ingredients, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And you have your spells already. And if you're a cleric, you already have somebody that you trust enough to perform these uh, rituals that will make you a lit. Or you paid and killed them afterwards. And, well, of course. You, you don't really trust anybody at that no, point. No, not at this point. <laughs> You're pretty evil. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, pretty... Well, actually, those, there are some uh, books that I've seen that actually talk about being a lawful good lich. I, yeah, I'm not really sure I'm with it, yeah, but really okay, sure it's your game. That. You can do know. it if you want. Uh, but anyway, okay. So the fir- you you have the spells, you have the potion. Now you need a phylactery or yeah, a jar, all right? Uh, and you need to be. It's you. You really have to think about what you're going to use to do this. Uh, first off, it's going to be made out of the highest quality material, which can't be wood. Uh, and the value of this item will never be less than two thousand gold pieces. And it needs to be something that you can probably hide easily and is durable, like diamond, for instance. Right. Uh, because it's going to hold your soul. Right. Now, once you have decided upon the item, you need to cast or have somebody cast enchant item upon it, uh, at which time it will then try, uh, it will make a save based on your own level or the person casting the spell. Uh, should that be successful, then the jar has trapped the soul cast upon it with a chance of success equal to 50% plus 6% per level of the magic user or, or cleric casting the, uh, the magic user cleric or whatever over 11th level. Okay, a roll of d- a double lot always indicating failure. Now, assuming everything has been successful up to this point and the jar proves to be soul receptive, the prepared candidate for lichdom either casts or has cast magic jar on it, at which point the one seeking lichdom can actually enter their soul into the phylactery. You're still not a lich, though, yet. Oh, Upon no. entering the jar, <laughs> there's more. Oh, yeah, it gets even better. Oh, yeah. The newly transformed lich automatically loses one level right off the bat with the yeah. corresponding hit points. And at this point... His remaining hit points as well as his soul are now stored within the jar, but he must then return to his own body to rest two to seven days because the the toll placed upon him in doing all of this is such that he immediately loses his top three level spells, which do not come back until he rests the appropriate amount of time and then goes back to reading or prayers to regain those spells. But congratulations, because by this point, actual lichdom has been achieved, and now the fun really starts. Yes. Let's hope that your body is around. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, one thing I, I do want to mention, and, and then I think, uh, Nick, you may actually uh, have some information that differs from it, but it's just kind of interesting. Uh, when you do prepare this potion, you're going to need arsenic, belladonna, yep. Uh, you need a you need fresh phase spider venom uh, under 30 days old, of course. You'll also need the blood of a dead humanoid infant killed by a phase spider and the now, blood. Yeah. Now there uh-huh. is a difference. Okay. Yes, uh, you mentioned in the Best of Dragon Volume Two, mm-hmm. they took that out where it said the blood of a dead humanoid infant killed by a face spider they changed that oh what they changed it to they just said the blood of a humanoid 
killed oh, by a face I have a feeling they figured it was a little un-PC. Yeah. Maybe. And But uh, there's one other one that you'll come up about the Wyvern Venom. Oh, yeah. yeah. That uh, one was well, changed, too. Yeah, the heart of a virgin humanoid killed by Wyvern Venom. Yeah, that one they just changed to the heart of a humanoid killed by Wyvern Venom in the Best of Dragon Volume 2 article. I noticed those two things, and I'm like, that's interesting. <laughs> that's an interesting edit. <laughs> yes. I'm like, but now does hmm. Best of Dragon also go over the side effects of drinking this potion? Yeah, it talks about the very end. Yes, what happens that might happen to you. Yes. Yeah, you roll a D100, and depending yeah. on what you roll – there could be multiple effects. For one thing, it might not work. Uh, right. But even when it does work, well, the best thing that can happen is you go into a coma for two to seven days and the potion works. Yes. Or this one I love. Permanently deaf, dumb, and blind, only a full wish can regain the sense. Hey, but the potion the works. Potion works. Yeah. Yay! Welcome to an eternity of being deaf, dumb, and blind. Yeah. yeah. But now that would be an interesting lich to do battle with. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be kind of like hitting a wooden post that never falls down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, Nick, much. what yeah. year was the uh, Best of Dragon copyrighted, that number two that year? That is 1981. Hmm, okay. I was so curious. it was right around the whole controversy surrounding D&D. So I'm assuming yeah. that's why they might have changed it. You know. uh, I don't know. Eighty-one, they might not have just yet because it kind of just started then. So, well, there was that whole Dallas affair in seventy-nine, which yeah. But I mean, they yeah, they edited that out. They also took out the thing about the uh, was it the percentile chance for the uh, trap the soul? It's not in the it's not in the best of dragon version. For some reason, that was left out for the. You know, when he said trap the soul has a chance to work equal to 50% plus 6% per level. Yeah, they took that out for some reason. I don't know why. Probably the same reasons. I I don't know. It just seemed kind of odd. Just like it just seemed like a game mechanic thing, you know. Yeah. But trap the soul is in there. They just don't mention what the percentage chance is. Something um, to probably ask him cask. I don't know. Yeah, and 1981 was when the novel Mazes and Monsters was released, so, yeah. Ah, uh, okay. That would be why. But there's also some other cool things, like if the uh, the next time that the character dies who becomes a lich, uh, no matter what happens, you can go into the jar, and doesn't matter how far away. I mean, cubes of force, prismatic spheres, lead boxes. You could just get right to the jar. Cool. But this is where the tough thing happens. To get out again of the jar, the magic user cleric must have his or another recently dead body within 90 feet of the jar. <laughs> so hopefully your body is close by. If not, it could be anything from like a mouse to a Kyrin. So, oh, so the, yeah, that would be interesting, huh? Aha, uh -huh, I've got my power by my mouse, damn it. Yes. Now the corpse the, the the corpse must fail. Fail its saving throw versus magic to be possessed. 
Mm. And the saving throw is to have one half the hit dice figure of the normal man, animal, or small monster, etc., regardless of alignment. If the uh, figure had three fewer hit dice in life, it had four or more, it gains one of the following saving throws according to alignment. And there's a list of all the different alignment uh, adjustments. And the courts cannot be dead longer than 30 days. If it makes the saving throw, it will not receive the lich ever. But you know what? That's interesting because, you know, what I like to say, if you died here, you'd already be home. Yeah, but uh, that's why you keep your, uh, you know, you keep your corpse close by the phylactery. Close but the phylactery. if you can't, you know, some some liches are too smart for their own good when it comes to hiding their phylactery. Because is say you hide your phylactery in a place that no one can ever encounter it. Well, nobody right. will ever destroy your soul. But the downside: what happens if your body's not close by? Uh, you have no supply of other corpses which you can right. inhabit. I mean, or it may be. I mean, we're saying that if you put your phylactery in place, not even a mouse is, you're going to go stir crazy mad just like a certain demi lich in Tomb of Horrors. Yeah, basically, what happens is, you know, whatever body that you get into, if it's not your own, you're a, the the lich is acting essentially as a as a white, it and um. And the white that whitish body will seek out its original one. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. And Assuming, of course, there's a body nearby to possess. Right. When that whitish body is, um, when you're when that lich's soul possesses that whitish body, it's out looking for its original body. And if I remember, if it finds the original body, it will then eat the old body after one. Yes, it will eat them after one week, will metamorphosize into the humanoid body similar to the, the Lich's original. Exactly. Uh, and one other thing to remember, too. Uh, say you did put some fresh bodies around your phylactery in case you ever needed a spare body. Uh, you know, part of what we, uh, you were just saying, Nick, is how yeah. long can those bodies be dead before you cannot use them? Right. It's 30 days. Exactly. No so you days. better have some way of getting mm-hmm. fresh bodies or cadavers. And that's, that's why liches have minions. <laughs> exactly. And you know what? Here's the other thing. While nothing can stop you from hitting your phylactery, and only a disintegrate spell, by the way, can destroy, actually yes. destroy the body, the actual body of the lich, every yeah. time you go back, to your phylactery, you lose one level of experience or hit dice. Yep, you sure do. And go under 10, guess what happens? You're permanently dead. Welcome to the true death. That's right. So liches want to be as much as possible outside of their phylactery whenever possible. I mean, because, you know, if, if, if possible, they want to be in their actual body because even when they're animating a substitute body, they can only their power is much diminished. I don't think they can ever get it higher than fourth level in somebody's right. body. Right, that's correct. There, and that's why they're essentially the body is like a as a white. Exactly, without the ability to level drain. Right, right. Yeah, so it pays to keep your body nearby, and it pays mm-hmm. to stay in that body and only use your phylactery when you absolutely have to. And this is probably where we're going into next is. 
So you have a NPC who's a lich. Now, how do you use them in a campaign? Well, given all those uh, things that a lich has to go through and maintain his lichdom, there are probably certain uh, creatures or um, other things that you use in order for you to get those bodies that you need each time you die. And, you know, maybe some certain types of monsters that you use in um, getting those things. Uh, off the top of my head, I would think if being a lich, you would probably want to use creatures that are relatively easy to control. Um, you know, maybe zombies. Ghouls. Uh, ghouls would be really good for that. So I, I, can, I can imagine, you know, using zombies, ghouls, maybe even skeletons to grab bodies that you need. Yeah, or you could use, uh, say, a wraith who could possess a body and bring it to you. There you go. That's another good way. And oh, what a real nasty encounter, a wraith. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, can you imagine a lich who has wraiths, ghouls, and gas working for mm-hmm. him? And maybe even golems, too. High enough level. I mean, you're talking anywhere between 14th and 18th level, 18th level of various either cleric or magic user or magic user cleric or whatever. I could see them making, you know, maybe using clay golems or flesh golems mm-hmm. to go out and get uh, bodies for you. Ooh, that'd be controlled. really nasty. A high-level yeah. cleric lich or magic user cleric lich With that's clay creating golems. clay golems. Going out and getting bodies for... Uh, or even flag. just guarding its phylactery, too. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. A dual-purpose creature, you know, not only getting the bodies, but also protecting the phylactery. Exactly. And could you put the phylactery inside the clay golem? Ooh! Oh, I like where you're going. You're devious. I like it. Yeah, now, <laughs> you, have a, now you have a mobile phylactery. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And, and it's and a lot protected. more powerful than fourth hit dice. Yeah, and very... Very well protected. I mean, right inside a golem. I could see the yeah. the beginnings of a campaign right there. Very Check interesting. This one out though, this will twist your mind a little bit. What about a lich that rules a city? Mm-hmm. And you could do it because, first of all, make inroads with the local thieves guild. They're stealing cadavers from you from the riverfront all the time. Second, Robert the Bruce in real life. Uh, and in the movie Braveheart, they showed his father with leprosy. But I think in real history, it was he who is suspected of having died from leprosy. Near the end of his reign, they didn't see him very much, right. and, which is one reason why they think he had leprosy. How about a lich that as its body decays, it hides under the lie of leprosy and still runs Ooh. its kingdom? Because liches tend to be lawful alignment, I believe, though it. <laughs> They can be lawful evil or chaotic evil. I, in the in the DM in the in the monster manual, they have them listed as neutral with evil in parentheses. So uh-huh. I think they could be like almost any evil alignment. Yeah, I, I would love to have a lawful evil lich uh, because remember, lawful evil actually can make an effective ruler. I mean, they're iron fisted, but low crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the crime that they don't want. That is. But if you had a powerful, lawful, evil lich ruling a city, he would have no problem getting bodies. Uh, the crown jewels could actually be his phylactery. There you go. It, it, it leads to some interesting 
paths. Right. And, and taking all this into mind, you could see a lifetime of a lich go by, a, a high-powered, say, we'll use our magic user slash cleric guy as an example, finds the particular incantations, goes on a, his own personal quest maybe to get the bits and pieces of his potion, becomes a lich, designs a a, a, a complex for himself for his body, uh, being held up with a, lots of traps, maybe puts out word of like a false tomb for himself and over hundreds of years he just inside his own particular tomb and he becomes something more than just a regular lich eventually his body decays and his spirit goes on to the other planes of existence and becomes what is known as the demi lich and i'm kind of alluding to the demi lich in the tomb of horrors and that's what basically happened with, with, with Aserac. And if you kind of think about it, in, in the way, now the tomb makes sense of how it is set up. I mean, it was, maybe he did have some minions or whatever. Either they were killed or they, were, they abandoned the tomb, whatever. Because there's not a whole lot of, you know, monster encounters in the Tomb of Horus. Yeah, the Tomb of Horus has very few actual creature encounters, and this is a great, you know, the more you think about the setup for this adventure, the more I'm reminded that, or the more I think that Aserak outwitted himself and went yeah. crazy. He did. I mean, maybe he did over all those hundreds of years, just, you know, he did go insane. And yeah, his just, paranoia led him to yeah. create a layer full of traps that would allow nobody to get close to him. Well, guess what? Nobody can get close to him. His body ultimately decayed to where it's not of great material use, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And he can't get any fresh bodies because he put himself in the middle of the ultimate trapped lair. Yes. And in doing so, becoming that creature, the Demi-Lich, he's even... Probably even more nasty than a regular lich. And, and, oh, he's got to be screaming mad. Yeah, and just the simple fact how a demi lich, what you have to do to destroy one, is 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 a is a monumental task in itself. Yeah, so, their powers are just crazy. Their howl doesn't cause fear; it causes death. Death. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, and yeah. Mm -hmm. And they don't. And they're listed as hit dice, 50 hit points, and special, which means, yes, they have 50 hit points, but look what you have to do to destroy the Demi-Lich like Aseract. Um a, a shatter spell cast upon the, its skull where I guess some of the uh, – let me get back to the Demi-Lich. The only thing that's really left of him is maybe a skull, some bones, and a bunch of dust. Exactly. You disturb that skull and bones and dust – the skull lifts up and does some really nasty things like possibly trapping your soul and one of the gems in its in the skull. So you can use a shatter spell, which will do 3 to 18 points of damage on the skull. Power word kill from the astral or ethereal planes will destroy it. <laughs> this one I love. A fighter or ranger with a vorpal blade, sword of sharpness, sword, plus 5, or vorpal weapon. A paladin with a vorpal weapon or a paladin with a plus four better weapon inflict full normal damage upon the skull. Yeah. 
yeah, because tough. you know every paladin's got one of those. Yeah, oh, it's, sure. it's very difficult, and and you know they're basically looking for the most powerful person in the party. To, here's to, here's the sick thing jar. about trying to destroy the thing. A mace of disruption, very powerful weapon against undead. If very underestimated, mace- and in my opinion, better than the Avenger. Right. Mace of disruption, you know, how much damage you do to a demi lich skull? One point. That's it. <laughs> One point of damage per hit. <laughs> or any character with a plus four or better magic weapon will do one point of damage per hit. That's it. Oh, wow. Dispel evil will do five to eight points of damage. Holy word pronounced against it inflicts five to 30 points of damage. So, yeah, uh, demi liches are even more nasty than the regular lich. And I got one demi lich. In, 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 a, in a sense, yeah. Well, I was going to say there's one demi lich that might even outrank Aserac, and that's Vecna. And technically, you yep. could call him a demi lich because the only, after he was destroyed by his erstwhile servant slash bodyguard cause, uh, whose own sword is an artifact, the Sword of Cause. Uh, he was left with only his left hand. And, uh, well, you know, that's the thing. I think he, it's hard to understand. I never understand if it's just his left eye and left hand that survived or if he lost his left hand and left eye and is seeking it because that's the thing with liches also. They 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 seek their full body until they have it all gathered again. You know, I never did really get down to the. I, I'm thinking it's only his left eye and left hand that's left. Yeah, I got that impression too. And with Vecna, uh, and even later on in the game, how the whole legend of Vecna gets all wrapped up where he's like becoming a demigod and everything. Yeah, I uh, never really got into Vec- that one. But, I never yeah. really got into that, but <laughs> I always liked the, the kind of mystery around Vecna just between those two items in the DMG. Oh, yeah. It's like, and cause you know, is one uh, I like too. Uh, the the whole dynamic, yeah, of and, and I think powerful, yeah, mage who gets murdered by his own evil bodyguard. And I think they kind of elaborated further on that cost was a vampire. Is that correct? Yeah, I think later on they show him to be a vampire, uh, which I suppose could work. And I, uh, and you know what, I kind of like that angle because. I'm thinking, you know, who would be the probably the if there was a an enemy to liches, I would think vampires would be probably their closest enemy. Could be. Uh, it depends opinion. on the vampire, because, again, vampires and liches are not like your average creature. They're more oh, no. individual. Uh, That's so, what I mean. you know, although I, I think. What if Cause was a Death Knight, which is a variant of the Lich? That's yeah. true. He could have been. I I've kind of had this idea that if there was two uh, creatures that were vying for power in in the world, I would think that liches and vampires would probably be um, ones that would be opposed to each other. I don't think they would work together. You know, yeah, it, 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 yeah, I can actually, uh, yeah, I agree because they both. You're talking about two very powerful egos, two yes. big egos in the room. Yes, 
Yeah, one is, I mean, they both have an essentially everlasting life. Uh, one gets it from, you know, uh, sucking the blood and the, you know, in, in D&D terms, life points, while the other one is just trying to, you know, build up more power in that respect. But, um, yeah. Now, I, which one I, is the vampire? Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. You know, but I could, I could almost, you can maybe even make a kind of a campaign to where you have, a, a lich in one area and a, maybe a vampire encroaching on that demi uh, in, in that lich's area. Mm-hmm. And maybe they have like this, I don't know, maybe between their minions, they have some sort of clandestine war between each other. Sure. You know? What if you had, uh, what if you had Strahd versus say, I don't know, Strahd versus Vecna. Yeah, yeah, you know, you'd have or, to bump up Strahd quite a bit, but for that matter, you could just do Vecna even, versus Cause. I mean, even even then, you can I you could probably design. I mean, you know, uh, what we were talking about, like uh, uh, for at least vampires, like Strahd, he had magic using abilities. I mean, why not give those to vampires too? I mean, maybe at one point they were magic users. Oh yep. yeah, I always give my it it depends again, this is where it gets into the whole vampires are individuals. Some vampires right. were were sorcerers and if they were, they definitely cast spells. Right. So their path to to um immortality was the vampiric way versus the lich's way which is through um a, a, a just a different route. And if I remember correctly, one of the uh, yes, one of the ingredients for becoming a lich is one quart of blood from a vampire yeah, or a person infected with vampirism. And so. what if, what if your lich be, uh, gained his lichdom by uh, chaining a vampire down and taking a quart of his blood? Yeah. That vampire would not be happy with you afterwards and at and he wants revenge on that lich so they have this you know this dark war between Mm -hmm. these two and your and your adventuring party is caught in between because they're causing all havoc throughout the land and you might i would even make it to a point where you might have to the adventuring party might have to make a choice of like maybe the enemy of my enemy is my friend that's oh, exactly sort of, that sort of angle. It's like, right. yeah, yeah, definitely. you might have to side with either the lich or the vampire right? <laughs> or, or you know, something like that. Yeah. Or what if the vampire, a vampire lord caught wind of a magic user that was in the process of becoming a lich and seeking the items to. And mm-hmm. this magic user actually sent the players out to retrieve said items Right. And then all of a sudden exactly. they're deal fighting vampires, not realizing they're also fueling a lich. Right. Here's another become, idea. Yeah, what if become. one of your players in a high level game wanted to achieve lichdom? Because I've played in games where evil characters were, obviously. Uh, and to do so, they need to get that quart of blood and a local vampire. Either a botched attempt on him or he gets wind of it somehow. But in the end, he promises power. He, he, he tells the character, serve him, do some favors for him, and he'll get that blood. But yeah. then maybe he double-crosses the mage. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you know, <laughs> different angles. And that's an angle you could use the whole how to become a lich. Lich, yeah. You have a whole campaign around it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I and mean, one more. Don't forget Asbertes from Descent into oh, the yes. Earth. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think it was the only published in um, cam uh, module that I know of where a lich is one of the listed encounters. And yeah, that's he's right an there. encounter. Uh, yeah, yeah at, and Decept in the Depths yeah. of the Earth. What a heck of an encounter, too. <laughs> yeah, yes. and Origins this last year, actually, I turned Asbertes into uh, – because I did in three parts. Uh, this, and Asbertes was the big baddie uh, in Descent to the Depths of the Earth for the first – uh, session that I ran. I always just found it odd that using just you know just a lich as an encounter and the whole thing. I mean, come on, it's a lich, dude. It's not and you go like into a... a room. If you turn to your left, you'll face ten orcs. But if yeah. you go to your right, you'll face a lich. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Talk about bad choice. <laughs> he chose wrong. Wrong. <laughs> poor. He chose poorly. That's yeah. why we always go left when we go into the dungeon. <laughs> so there you have it, I think. The Lich, how one is made, maybe how to use them, and some really cool campaign ide- ideas, and uh, some examples that were of Liches and Demi-Liches in, uh, in uh, D&D. So, yeah, agreed. Some really good stuff there. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess that'll wrap up the show this week, then. Aw. Aw. Say it ain't so. No, it's so. It's, I'm sorry for walking. We have to go. Oh, no. It's, it's not. It's crazy. <laughs> wow. And that should be required once per episode of Christopher Walker reference somehow. Christopher <laughs> Walker would make a great vampire. He would. Make a great vampire? No. Be a lich. <laughs> Looks like a lich. Yeah, it kind of does. He's already on the path to being a lich. He's already on the path to lichdom. He's already kind of crazy. And <laughs> yeah. maybe, so maybe, maybe he rolled wrong on that percentile table. Maybe. So uh, I guess uh, let's keep it original and keep it old school. And good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Initiative Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative. 